All right, this is Gary Parrish again from CBSSports.com again. And let me welcome you back to the Iowa College Basketball Podcast, which is now, of course, brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio for a free trial and 10% off. Go to Squarespace.com slash CBS Sports and use the offer code FUN. That's FUN at Squarespace.com slash CBS Sports. All right, let's get into it. If you've been following me on Twitter, you know I've been in New York the past few days uh, doing TV work with the CBS Sports Network. Among the people who've been sitting beside me every night is John Rothstein, and he's nice enough to join me on the podcast, even though we've already been talking college basketball on television for about the past eight hours. It's like 2 a.m. here in New York City right now, by the way. John Rothstein, you're going to be able to stay awake for the entirety of this? Absolutely. College hoops never stops, GP. You know that. <laughs> it feels like it these days, I'll tell you that. Now listen, I'm going to tell a secret about you that people probably don't realize because you're always tweeting about food and these big meals and everything's off the charts. Here's the truth of being around you for the past 48 hours. You don't eat. You don't eat. Oh, I eat. You're the most disciplined eater I've ever seen. For people who don't know, in the television studio, they they have we have catered meals every night. We have late night pizza. There are brownies. There are cookies. And the only person who never touches any of it is John Rostein. No, well, that is true to an extent. I definitely pick my spots. But when I go in, like you know, probably usually Sunday nights, I go to a specific restaurant and make sure I get a cheat meal in. I go in, but no, I do not snack like during the week while I'm just sitting watching games eating pretzels and shit. But everyone would do that. <laughs> Very good. Good for you. A lot, of, a lot of us in that studio could learn some lessons from you, I bet. All right, let's start with a three-point play brought to you by Squarespace. Uh, we'll go over three items very, very quickly. Uh, the first one is this. John has been uh, talking for a few weeks now on CBS Sports Network, trying to figure out you know, who is the third best team in the SEC. We know Florida is good, ranked number one in the country. We know Kentucky's good, probably not as good as uh, people projected in the preseason, but still a legitimate top 20 team and a threat to go far uh, in the NCAA tournament. But after that, I don't know who you can trust, whether it's Tennessee or Missouri, uh, Georgia. It doesn't have an NCAA tournament resume, but they might actually be the third best team in the SEC, which probably isn't good for the SEC. You tell me, have you figured it out yet? Who is Who do we put after Florida and Kentucky? I don't think there is a team right now, Gary, to be candid with you. I think that Missouri, because of their early season win over UCLA, gives them a little bit of a leg up in terms of the overall resume. But when you really slice things like an atom right now, or split things like an atom, as I should say, you know, Missouri has the best talent on paper on the perimeter, but LSU is a team that beat Kentucky. They could have beaten Kentucky a second time at Rupp Arena last Saturday. But, again, they haven't been consistent enough throughout the course of the season to warrant an NCAA bid. I also think that Arkansas is a team that, as we know, has been inconsistent on the road under Mike Anderson, but they have a golden opportunity Thursday night at Rupp Arena because they've beaten Kentucky once, and they also have a win over SMU in the non-conference portion of their schedule, and they have a win over Minnesota in the non-conference portion of their schedule but the question is, can they beat Kentucky a second time at Rupp Arena? So, again, we dissect it, we digest it, we try to offer perspective. But who is the third team in the SEC? I don't know. I don't think you know. I don't think anybody knows because right now there isn't one. Is it possible in the NCAA tournament we're going to look up and it's just going to be Kentucky or Florida? Or are they going to get a third in no matter what? 
this is the way I look at things right now, and this is one thing that you know we'll continue to talk about as we get in the championship week right now. Here's the thing. The SEC will probably get more than two teams in the field because when you look around the country, other teams in other conferences aren't performing at the level that we've seen in past years. The Mountain West Conference last year got five teams in the field. This year, they're only probably going to get two. The Pac-12, which we all thought at the beginning of the season, was probably potentially a six- or seven-bit league. They're not going to get near that amount in the NCAA tournament. But if conferences are that wide open and there's that much parity going on in every league that we're talking about, that opens the door for bid stealers during championship week to win their respective conference tournaments and steal bids. So I think that's the thing that we need to keep an eye on. Because the level of separation is so small, we could see several instances where teams that we don't have in the bracket wind up being in the bracket because they win their conference tournament. The second thing I want to get to in the three-point play is, is Virginia. They they won uh, uh, a late Wednesday night. They knocked out Miami. It's going to set up a situation where they got Syracuse at home on Saturday, and if they win that game, and they'll be favored to do it, they're going to be your ACC regular season champion. Here's my question for you. Is Virginia really the best team in the ACC, or are they just a product of a favorable schedule? I didn't recognize this. I'll give credit where credit's due. Laura Keeley, who is a Duke beat writer, um, pointed out today that Virginia does not have to play any of the top seven teams in the ACC twice this year. And so, um, you know, they, they they very clearly had a favorable schedule, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not the best in the country. I mean, best in the ACC. I'll let you call it. Virginia, best in the ACC or simply ACC regular season champions? Right now you'd say simply ACC regular season champion, but Virginia has to play the teams on their schedule. Sure. And the teams on their schedule have all really fell victim to what is one of the better defensive squads that we've seen in college basketball. But the reason why I think Virginia is better than people are saying, and I think Virginia has probably a little bit more opportunity to go deep in March than people are giving them credit for, you look at the one time they went on the road and played one of these elite ACC teams. It was January 13th when they played Duke. They had a chance to tie the game in the final 20 seconds of the game. They weren't a pushover. They weren't a team that somebody could kind of, you know, really push to the side and say that they weren't going to be formidable. And, you know, I think one thing you have to look at, too, they were in a life-and-death game against Pitt on February 2nd. They found a way to win. They've been really good in close games, even though these games weren't against the elite competition of the league. They still won. They've still been impressive. And they're a very difficult team to prepare for because there's not one guy you can point to and say that's the assassin. Joe Harris's scoring is down from last year, but he's playing on a better basketball team. I've said all season long this team has seven starters because the two guys they bring off the bench, Justin Anderson and Anthony Gill are good enough to be starters in any BCS league in America. It's a different type of team, a team that doesn't have your vintage alpha dogs. The last thing I want to get to in the three-point play is, is North Carolina. They typically have you know, a bunch of top 15 recruits, maybe even number one recruit in the country, that end up leading uh, the teams within that program on a yearly basis. And yet, uh, this year, that guy is Marcus Page, and he was barely, I think, a top 35 recruit in the country. Now, top 35 recruits are great, uh, but these aren't typically the guys. Like when they signed Marcus Page, nobody really said that's going to be a guy who's the best player on a Carolina team someday. They wondered actually if he was good enough to be a point guard 
uh, at UNC. It seems silly thing to say, given what we just watched uh, here late Wednesday with North Carolina winning at North Carolina State in overtime. Marcus Page got 35 points, including the game winner. Uh, we've talked a lot this year about most improved players in the country. Casey Prather, Cameron Bairstow. Uh Does Marcus Page clearly belong on that list at some point? Well, you know, not only is he one of the most improved players in the country, I think he's establishing himself now as one of the best guards in the country. Sure. I mean, you know, I mean, when we look right now at what he has done in big moments, when Carolina needed a big shot to beat Pitt a couple of weeks ago, they went to Marcus Page. When they needed him, obviously, against North Carolina State on Wednesday night, they went to Marcus Page. And, you know, I talked to Roy Williams about this last week. Roy Williams envisioned this season for North Carolina to be highlighted by a perimeter that would be Marcus Page, Reggie Bullock, and P.J. Hairston. Sure. Two of those three players aren't on North Carolina. So, Gary, think about this for a second. With all due respect to J.P. Tokato and Leslie McDonald, there's really not somebody who can take the attention away from Marcus Page from an offensive perspective on the perimeter. He is the guy in bold print on a nightly basis, and he's still flourishing and flourishing at a high level. You mentioned Roy Williams. I mean, this is a guy who's in the Hall of Fame. He's got two national championships. So uh, I, th- I think if that's your resume, you can't really be underrated. But but I don't know that when you put together a list of top five coaches in America, top ten coaches in America, when you ask somebody to give you who you think their top th- five, three coaches in America, whatever, uh, Roy is almost never on those lists. And yet you look around right now, and I wonder in the country who's doing a better coaching job. It's one thing to recruit a bunch of pros to North Carolina and then win with them. It's another thing to lose your best player in the preseason, actually never have him play a game this year in P.J. Harrison, and still be sitting here doing what they're doing uh, right now. I mean, you take the best player off other teams in the country and ask, and, and ask yourself, where would they be? Where would Syracuse be without C.J. Fair? Where would Creighton be without uh, Doug McDermott? Where would Duke be without Jabari Parker? Well, that is essentially what North Carolina ran into uh, when P.J. Harrison was ruled ineligible. So it's just, uh, I, I, I don't want to say it's flying under the radar because I'm not that sure, but uh, folks ought to be giving Roy Williams probably a little more credit than, than he's been getting because this is, and I know I'm speaking about a guy who's won two national championships, I think you could intelligently argue that this might be one of his best coaching jobs ever. No, I think you're spot on, and I think the interesting thing is last year, if we remember, Roy Williams kind of went against his traditional alignment in the way he'd like to structure things by playing a smaller lineup Mm -hmm. that had four perimeter players on the floor. And again, he's kind of had to remake things on the fly by playing a team right now or building a team that features Marcus Page as the primary offensive focal point. He wanted to feature P.J. Harrison. That was what everybody anticipated. But he's had to kind of remake things on the fly. And I know we talked about this a little bit in the studio. I think that North Carolina's length and their ability to have so many different guys up front that can hurt opposing teams on the backboard is the real key to the team. Marcus Page is their go-to scorer. There's no doubt about that. But when you can throw out there McAdoo, Bryce Johnson, Kennedy Meeks, you have a lot of ammo. You have a lot of ability to get tips and deflections. And, you know, you saw a game when they played Louisville early in the year when they were able to get separation from the Cardinals in the second half It's because they were playing three bigs at a time. Last year he went four small. This year he's mixing in different lineups. I think the length that 
North Carolina has up front is a big factor, especially in the NCAA tournament. Remember, you are listening to the Ion College Basketball Podcast brought to you by Squarespace, where you can easily create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace is constantly, by the way, improving its platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. they got beautiful designs for you to start with and all of the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business. Squarespace is very easy to use, but they still have an amazing support team, and those folks are available 24-7. It starts at just $8 a month, and you can start uh, with a free trial with no credit card required, uh, which means you can start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, remember, make sure you use the offer code FUN to get 10% off and to show your support uh, for the Ion College Basketball Podcast. My guest in this episode is John Rosti from CBS Sports Network at CBSSports.com. We've been doing television stuff the past uh, two nights together. And one of the things in studio on Wednesday night that we talked about uh, late in the show, uh, the Inside College Basketball show, uh, was Villanova and how, you know, I, I think this gets lost a little bit. They are sitting here. They've only lost to two teams. I know they have three losses, but two of them are to Creighton. The only teams that they've lost to uh, uh, Creighton and Syracuse are two teams that are both ranked in the top 10, and I think you could reasonably rank both of them uh, in, the, in the top five. And yet people still, uh, I don't think, throw Villanova in the category of best teams in America. Why do you think that is? Is it, and this is something I said tonight, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts on it. Is it because in these two high-profile games against the National Player of the Year, Doug McDermott, they've got completely run off the court, and so people almost dismiss all of the good stuff they've done, which is beat Kansas early, by the way, um, and, and focus on the two lopsided losses, and it sort of skews what you think of Villanova or what most people think of Villanova uh, as we sit here in late February. No, that's definitely one of the reasons, Gary, but I think another thing is this. The Big East, as we once knew it, used to present multiple opportunities to showcase a team like Villanova against NCAA tournament teams. That's not the case anymore. Villanova, since they've been in conference play, has had two games against Creighton, and they've had a home game against Xavier where they beat the Musketeers by 23. Other than that, Villanova has not played in a game where their opponent was a guaranteed NCAA tournament team. That's a vast, vast difference from what we used to see the Wildcats have in the old Big East. How wild is it that the Big East decided they wanted to break away from some of the uh, all-sports playing schools? Those schools get together. They didn't ever want to be in that position. Uh, take some Conference USA schools and Temple start a new league called the American Athletic Conference. And as we're sitting here in late February, it's not even close. The American Athletic Conference is better than the Big East, and it's probably going to be that way next year as well. Is this surprising to you? It's shocking. I think the uh, the ironic thing, and I, I just I talked about this a lot in the preseason, because of the way college basketball is structured right now, with you know teams like Wichita State and VCU and Butler all going to the Final Four at some point in the last five years, you don't have to be in a BCS league to have an elite team. Wichita State is proving that again this year. So really, the non-conference schedule where you build your resume becomes more and more important, especially for teams in the Atlantic 10, the American, and the Big East. And I think, and we've talked about this the last couple of days, the fact that the Atlantic 10 lost Temple, Xavier, Butler, and also Charlotte, who we can't forget was an NIT team last year, and is probably going to get more teams in the NCAA tournament than the Big East, 
I think it's one of the unbelievable stories that we have in college basketball this season. It really I is. I think it's unbelievable. It really is because, like, you look at another league that got, you know, lost its best programs, like Conference USA, and I know there weren't as many good programs in Conference USA, uh, but now it's completely off the radar. I mean, you don't even – I mean, I know you do, but most people have no idea what's going on in that league, and yet you could – you could reasonably suggest that the Atlantic 10 is better in this particular season without Butler, without Xavier, without Temple. And those are three, you know, historically strong programs. So it's been a, a really remarkable uh, run for that league in this particular year, led by St. Louis. I, hey, let me ask you about them, because they're ranked in the top 10. And so clearly they, they are being taken seriously, I guess, by voters. But I bet you we could poll, I don't know, uh, 50 different college basketball writers and ask them to pick a Final Four, and almost nobody would have St. Louis. I bet you of the top 10 teams, uh, they would be on uh, fewer people's list than anybody else. Do you think people uh, understand how good this basketball team is, or is it one of those deals where, you know, if you don't play in the SEC, Big 12, Pac-12, whatever, um, until you beat big-name schools from those leagues, uh, people are skeptical? Yeah, I think people are skeptical, but you know the ironic thing is St. Louis was in a life-and-death game with Wichita State on their home floor, and Wichita State won by making a couple of plays on the final possession. But since then, Gary, they have been absolutely dominant. And here's something that I looked up that I thought was really, really interesting you know, from the other day. Since that game against Wichita State, St. Louis has allowed over 70 points three times, and two of the times was an overtime of games against George Mason. They have only allowed over 70 points once since December 1st in a regulation game. I mean, that's stuff you just can't make up. And I also think there's something to be said for consistently winning close games. They won a game on the final possession at Rhode Island. They won a game at the final possession, okay, at LaSalle. They're a grizzled team, and it all comes down to matchups. If you're a team that struggles to score, if a team like Cincinnati had to play St. Louis, if a team like SMU or Virginia had to play St. Louis, or even a team like Arizona, potentially, it would be a difficult matchup because St. Louis isn't going to be anybody else but St. Louis. Okay? They're comfortable in their own skin. They have a bunch of players who have been through the gamut. They've won already in Atlantic 10 regular season tournaments by the last year. They're one of these teams that could come out of nowhere and win multiple games in the field, but... Unfortunately, we won't really know how far they can go until we see the bracket. You've mentioned Wichita State a couple of times. They have turned into, uh, I think, the most divisive team in the country. John Calipari said a few weeks ago that he thought his Kentucky basketball team was uh, the most overanalyzed team in the history of sports. And the truth is, uh, I don't even know if it's the most analyzed team in college basketball this season. I think the shockers now are. Why do you think, or, or and are you surprised, that people are seem to be rooting against them. I was talking to Bruce Pearl about this uh, earlier in the week because he had the Wichita State Bradley game uh, on television, and he said, you know, like people used to root for the underdog. Like if you had a story like this, everybody would be rallying behind it. And yet, it seems like, and maybe this is just me living in my own little world, but it seems like more people are rooting against Wichita State than why Wichita State. Does that register the same way with you? And if so, why do you think that is? Well, I think the people that are making a case against Wichita State are looking at the other bodies of work for potential number one seeds. And 
I was not somebody a year ago who felt that Gonzaga should have been a number one seed in the NCAA tournament because they played in the West Coast Conference. And I think when you really look at the other candidates for number one seeds in the NCAA tournament, I don't believe that Wichita State should be a number one seed. But the question you have to ask yourself is this. If a school like Drexel or a school like UTEP was in the same position as Wichita State, because that's what the Missouri Valley is comparable to this year in terms of a league, and they won one game against the team that is going to be in the NCAA tournament, would you still feel the same way about them being a number one seed? That's a fair point. And that's a, that's, you know, I know that last year isn't supposed to have any effect on the decision-making process in this year. Like, I understand all the... Uh, the things the selection committee, uh, all the instructions they're given. But I still think that, that that sits in the back of your mind somewhere. We always talk about the selection committee like it's, you know, some robotic function. It, they, they're humans, and they're guys with memories and women with memories, and they understand um, they understand that this Wichita State team did prove itself uh, last year in March. And so I do think on some level that's going to seep into it, and they're going to be given a one seed on selection Sunday. Um, uh, if they're sitting there undefeated. But if you were trying to argue against them, the way you just did it is the way to do it because it's very difficult to counter that. If Drexel were sitting here undefeated with one win over a fellow tournament team, would you also be advocating for them to be a one seed in the tournament? Uh, that's an interesting question, and, and, and I'm not sure I could answer uh, positively, which makes me uh, maybe be talking out of both sides of my mouth. If you're going to argue against it, and there are a lot of people out there arguing against it, I would advise you uh, to argue it against it the way John just argued against it. Put it, uh, put it up against another comparable school from a comparable league and, uh, and see what people would say. But I, I, tell me if this is a fair point. So th- what's happening right now is people are pointing out that Wichita State didn't play enough good teams in the non-conference portion of the schedule. Well, um, they, they went to St. Louis. Um, they got Tennessee at home, and Tennessee, they might end up in the NCAA tournament, but you know Tennessee's clearly not as good as, as Wichita State thought Tennessee would be. Alabama was projected top five in the SEC. They went to Tuscaloosa, won there. Um, Alabama hasn't turned out to be as good as you would have hoped. BYU is usually BYU. They're not as good this year, so that win doesn't look as impressive. In other words, Greg Marshall scheduled as aggressively as he possibly could, took every game that, that he could against the Power Conference school and I just think it's inherently unfair or almost like rigging the system if you're going to collectively as power conference schools say we're not going to play somebody like Wichita State and then spend February and March saying Wichita State didn't play anybody. It seems like you almost lose the right to talk about their non-conference schedule when you almost are uh, collectively uh, agreeing to not play them. I mean, is that, you know, if you're a Wichita State fan or Greg Marshall specifically, that's got to be a frustrating reality where people are now saying you haven't played anybody and you're screaming, we tried to play everybody. Nobody will schedule games with us. Are you really going to hold that against us? How would you respond to that? Well, I think, you know, unfortunately for Greg Marshall, Tennessee isn't the team that you and I both thought they'd be at the start of the season. People anticipated Tennessee of being the third wheel in the SEC behind Kentucky and Florida. They're far from it. They're 17 and 11, and they're scratching and clawing to get into the field of 68. Alabama has been a disappointing team. So when you look at it, Greg Marshall did find two teams that he felt would be NCAA tournament caliber teams, but those teams haven't lived up to their end of the building. 
No, there's no question. I mean, the, the way that the other teams have performed, because I've talked to that staff about it. Like, they want Tennessee, after they beat Tennessee, to go out and win every game. They want St. Louis to keep winning. They want BYU to win games. They wanted Alabama to be good in the SEC, uh, but it just hasn't broke the right way for them. Uh, either way, it's, uh, you know, they are sitting here at this moment 30 and 0. They got an opportunity on Saturday to close out the regular season undefeated. Then they go to St. Louis for the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament, at which point they'll be heavy favorites to sit on Selection Sunday uh, with a perfect record. Okay, well, since it's the middle of the night, it's probably time to get out of here. So let me thank John Rothstein for joining me on the podcast on uh, this early, early uh, Thursday. And thank all you guys for uh, continuing to listen, reading what we write, interacting with us on Twitter. Remember, you can subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast uh, on iTunes. It's the quickest way to get the latest episode. So make sure you do that. And either way, I'll talk to you again on Monday with Matt Norlander and Jeff Borgello. Take care.